in who I am or what I've done. We glory in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. He finished the work um, for the redemption of all mankind through His perfect life, His perfect death, um, and His resurrection. And so um, we're thankful for that. We praise Him for who He is and what He's done for us. That's what tonight's all about. That's what every service is all about. We are to lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is alone, alone the only one worthy of our praise. Now tonight... I want to thank you for being with us. I want to thank you for making the study of the Word of God a priority in your life. Thank you for bringing your family to the house of God this evening. Um, I know that the Lord has something for us if we're ready to receive that. Can you say amen? amen? And that's what I always want to encourage you to do. Come with purpose. Come ready to receive what the Lord has for you. Come hungry. Come thirsty. Always remember the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 5 and 6. He said, blessed are they. How many want God's blessing? How many want to hear what God has for you? Yeah, me too. All of us want the blessing of God. We need the blessing of God. And the Bible says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So come hungry, man. If you come hungry, if you come thirsty for what the Lord has for you, I promise you'll be filled up. I promise God will give you just what you stand in need of. Um, it, that has been the case in my walk with the Lord. As I've come hungry, um, I, I've received the blessing that the Lord has for me. So I encourage you to do that. Pray for your pastor. Uh, pray for what God is doing in your church. Pray that God will reveal himself to us, that his presence and power would be manifest among us. Continually do that. Come with purpose, uh, ready to receive what the Lord has for you. And I'm so glad you're here. So thankful that you've made the decision to come be a part of, of Bible study tonight. I'm telling you, you're in the right place. Anytime you come into a place and it smells like chicken and dressing, you know you're in the right place. And ladies, I want to thank you so much for working hard and providing that good meal. And I can't wait to get some of it in just a little bit. I know it's good. If it, smell, if, it's, if it tastes half as good as it smells, it's going to be really good. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for all you do every uh, Wednesday night. Man, that is such a blessing to me and my family, to our church. And, uh, and we just praise God for you. Uh, coming and serving and being a part of the body of Christ, being his hands and his feet. So uh, we're going to feed you tonight good physically. I know that's already taken place for you, uh, for those of you who took part in, in the meal downstairs. But we also want to feed you spiritually straight from the bread of life, the word of God. And that's what I want to get into right now in Romans chapter number 1. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be starting a brand new section of scripture tonight. We're going to be looking at Romans 1, 18 through 32. Romans chapter 1. Verses 18 through 32. Let me ask you a question. Has anyone, anyone ever came up to you and said, all right, I've got some good news and bad news. Anybody ever heard that? And usually followed by that statement is which one do you want next or which one do you want first? Now for me, I don't know about you, but I cringe every time somebody says those words. Because usually if they tell you they've got bad news, they've really got bad news. And so I cringe in saying I want the bad news. But usually that's what I'll do. I'll want the bad news first. That way if I get the bad news, maybe it can be made better by the good news. Now how many of you know that's exactly what the Apostle Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit does right here in Romans chapter number 1. Romans chapter 1, he gives us the bad news first. That's 18 through 32 of chapter number 1. Now, we have said that the book of Romans is the constitution for the Christian. The book of Romans is the foundation for our faith. 
The book of Romans is such a powerful book and by many is regarded as the most important book in all the New Testament because it outlines for us plainly the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who have, uh, who have been a part of the, the, um, the Power of the Gospel series that we're doing on Sunday morning, who can define for me what the gospel is? Anybody? The good news. Who said that? The good news, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's the gospel. Now, how do you understand, before you can truly understand how good the good news is, you've got to know the bad news. Before you can truly understand and grasp just how glorious the gospel message is, the message that's still changing hearts, changing lives, and changing the world that we live in, before you can really know how good and glorious the gospel is and how it's still changing the world and can change the world, you must see and I must see a picture of the world that has rejected the gospel. And that's what Paul shows us right here in these verses, 18 through 32. He shows us a world that has disobeyed God, that has rejected God. It shows us a lost world without Christ. He shows us the world that we live in today, the world of darkness. How do you know if you are in Christ, you are in the light? But for those who have not yet trusted in Jesus, been born again into the family, been made partakers of the new life that Christ gives, for those of, 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 those, for those of us in the world who have not done that, they are still in the dark. The Bible says that we've been called out of the darkness and into the marvelous light of the Lord Jesus. That's for the blood bolt. That's for the born again. That's for the saved. But for the, for the lost... For those who have not yet trusted the Lord, they're still in the dark. I mean, Paul paints for us a very ugly picture of a lost world. And, and, and it almost makes me cringe when I read this bad news. But you can take the bad news that we see in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 and you can open up your morning paper, the newspaper for today, and it will almost read identical which shares to me, shows to me that God's word is absolute truth. It's real and relevant for the world we live in today. If you believe that tonight, say amen. amen. Let's, let's read this together. I'm going to read all of 18 through 32, then we'll come back and unpack this as far as we can go. Look what it says in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now, am I reading that right? Because the Bible says... God is a God of wrath. Now, listen to me, folks. How many of you are thankful tonight that God's a God of love? We, we talk about that. We sing about that. We praise God for that. We read it in Scripture. God is love for God so loved the world. We all love those passages. We all like to talk about God who is love. And, and I, I love that too. And rightly so. Without the love of God, we don't know the grace of God. Without the love of God, we don't know the mercy of God. Without the love of God, we don't understand the forgiveness of God. We are so thankful. We praise Him that He is love. But if all you know of the God of the Bible is that He is love, you don't have the full revelation of God. You don't get the full picture. God is also a God of wrath who punishes sin, who hates sin. See, if God is truly righteous, He must hate sin. If you love righteousness, you got to hate sin. 
Just like if a doctor hates disease, or if a doctor loves to make people well, he hates disease. Right? That's the truth of God. Listen, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. Why? Because God is just. He does what's right. And so the Bible says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Not some ungodliness, not most ungodliness, not the, the real big things that we see as ungodly. Not only that, but also the, what we see as the small things. How many know sin is sin and God is angry at sin? Still today, he is. Now we're going to see through the good news that God's made a way for the sinner to be forgiven. We're going to see that God took the sin of all mankind and placed it upon his son. But the bad news is, people who are still in their sin are under God's wrath. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to a corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, watch this, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up into vile affections for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Watch this now. Verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, Fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural afflictions, implicable, watch what he says, unmerciful. Now, I'm telling you, if you turn on the nightly news tonight or you pick up your morning newspaper tomorrow, you're going to see what's outlined for us right here on the page of Scripture everywhere. I promise you that. All of these things that are mentioned from 29 through 31, all of these things that are mentioned from 26 through 31, verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but watch this, but have pleasure in them that do them. He said not only do people take part in this, but even though they know the wrath and the judgment of God, they even applaud those that are living in those lifestyles. We're seeing that everywhere today. This is the picture 
of the lost, dark world that we live in. How many of you know this world needs the gospel? This world needs the truth. This world needs Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. I'm so thankful, Lord, that uh, you've made your grace real to me. I'm thankful, Lord, that you've uh, touched my heart and changed my life. God, what you can do for me, you will do for others if they'll only trust you. And Lord, if there be one here tonight that's not yet trusted in you, would you, Holy Spirit, convict their heart like you once did mine. Show them their need for a Savior. God, I pray that you light a fire in your people's hearts and lives tonight, helping us to realize we have the answer for a lost and dying world, and it's you, Lord Jesus. Help us to understand how important it is, how vital it is that we give the answer to those who are asking the questions. Help us, Lord, to show your truth through how we live, to show your love in how we live, what we do, and to share your love with our mouths so that, Lord, people may come to you and be saved. Forgive us, Lord, where we've failed you. Forgive us where we've uh, not been what you've called us to be and help us by your power to live in a way that's pleasing unto you. Lord, tonight, I ask that you move me out of the way and use me. I can do nothing in and of myself and I want to do nothing in my ability, but through your power, Holy Spirit, do your work among your people in Jesus' name, amen. There's three things that I want you to see tonight through, from 18 through 32. And we're not going to get through all three of these, but I hope we get through the first one. First of all, I want you to talk to you about man's willful self-determination. Then we're going to talk about uh, man's self-deception. And then we're going to talk about man's self-destruction. In 18 through 20, we'll talk about man's willful self-determination. Let me read to you something that... Um, Dr. Warren Wiersbe said concerning Romans chapter number one. I love how he puts this. Man, this is a great quote. He says, the Bible does not teach evolution or that man started low and climbed high. The Bible teaches devolution. That man first started high and because of sin fell lower than the beast. That's what the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation, but it certainly teaches it here in Romans chapter one. It teaches that men who were created by God in God's image, listen, and God said it's good, those men chose to disobey God, fell into sin, and became lower than the beast that God had given them uh, authority over. And we're going to see that as we go along. The Bible does not teach that uh, men started low and climbed high, but that men started high and fell low because of sin. Now, let's look at how men did that. Men did that, first of all, through a willful self-determination. Let me tell you what men, apart from God, are determined to do. They're determined to be the God of their universe. Amen? See, that's true, that, that is truly the story all throughout the Word of God. Men have either chosen to trust God as God, or men want themselves to be God. Men want to be the rulers of their own domain. They want to do what they want, when they want, how they want. That started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Men chose, a man chose, in the Garden of Eden to turn his back on God and do what man wanted. Amen? 
And it's been that way ever since. And listen, that is still the question that we have to answer. Are we going to let God be God or are we going to be God? Are we going to do what we want or are we going to do what God wants? Are we going to trust in our way or are we going to trust in God's way? That's still the question that each and every one of us have to answer individually even tonight. Right here as we're studying through the Word of God. Even though God has revealed His existence, and He has. We'll see that right here in uh, 18, 19, and 20. Even though God has, real, uh, has, has shown to us not only His existence, but His eternal power how powerful, how wonderful he is. Even though God has revealed to us his authority, man has still chosen to turn his back on God and go their own way. And will do so, the Bible teaches, even until the end of time. Why? Because of sin. Because of Satan. Because of this world. This world that is against God and against his truth. That's what we see here. In Romans chapter number 1. Let's read together starting there in verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now let me tell you what that means. When it says that they hold the truth in unrighteousness. What that means is they know the truth but they suppress the truth. People who choose to uh, reject God and hold to the atheistic viewpoint, listen to me, they know the truth because God has shown them the truth. We'll see it in a minute and see how he's shown them the truth. They know the truth, but they choose to suppress the truth. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. You need to understand that. I've heard it said, you probably have too, and I believe it. I've never been in a foxhole, but I would bet you that there are no atheists in foxholes. When it comes time for a man, woman, boy, or girl to leave this walk of life, I believe within the heart of every man, woman, boy, or girl, they know their need for the God of heaven. What I'm trying to say is what I say all the time. There's a Jesus-shaped hole in all of us. And we know something's missing without him. Atheists may lie to us, and a lot of them even lie to themselves, but subconsciously everyone knows that there is a God because God has shown it unto us, each and every one of us. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is according to the Word of God, and we're going to prove how that's true in a moment. Folks, listen to me. If that's true, then everybody becomes guilty before the God of heaven. Even someone who's never heard the gospel becomes guilty before a God who's revealed himself to them. And we'll see how that works. Watch. There's two ways God has revealed himself to us. And he outlines them for us in verses 19 and 20. He tells us what he does in verse 19. Watch. Because that which made me known of God, watch this, is manifest. Now somebody give me a definition for manifest. To be made known. To be brought into the light. What it's saying is, God has shown this to all of us. He's manifested in two ways. Because that which made me known of God is manifest, watch this, in them... 
for God has shown it unto them. So the two ways God has manifest himself to all of us, to all of mankind, is in us and unto us. Do you see that? Everybody get that? Now, I love Brother Scotty said something to me last week that really blessed my heart concerning Romans 1, 18, 19, and 20. And he said Romans chapter 1, verse 18 speaks of intentional contempt. There is an intentional contempt with the uh, person who is still in their sin against God and they hold the truth in unrighteousness. But in verse 19, we see an objective morality and then in verse 20, we see um, the, the, the creation itself and how that God has fine-tuned creation for the existence of man. Now, that all speaks to what he says there in verse 19. God shows it in us and unto us. When God shows it in us, he's speaking of our conscience. Everybody say conscience. I know we've all been born with a conscience. Why? Because we've been given a living soul. Amen. What I mean is, there is an objective morality. We know there is a right and there is a wrong. Now, how do we know that? Let's define our terms. Now, let me give you my definition of objective morality. Let's start with morality. What does it really mean? Morality is distinguishing between right and wrong good and bad, all right? So what do I mean when I say objective morality or an objective moral truth? There is a standard for morality, there's a standard for what's right and what's wrong that transcends human opinions and judgments. Let me put it to you another way. We didn't create what's right or wrong by our own ethics, but our ethics was given to us by someone who transcends human beings. Amen. Listen, we didn't discover right and wrong. Right and wrong was put in us. Amen. <laughs> this is very, very important. If you're going to use apologetics in, in, in sharing the gospel and being evangelical with your doubting friends or your atheist friends, this is a great way to do it because everybody knows deep down on the inside there is an objective moral standard. How did it get there? And then we'll talk about what it is in just a moment. How did we get an objective moral standard in us? Well, to answer that question, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Everybody take your Bibles, turn there. I want you to see this in your copy of the Word of God. I'm just what I'm telling you is the truth. Genesis chapter 1. And look down with me, please, at verse number 26. Genesis 1. Verse number 26, watch this. The beginning starts with who? Amen. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. So before man there was, before anything there was. And then after God had spoken a lot of things in Genesis chapter 1, God makes man. God said, let us, everybody say us. Now probably the biggest word in all of Genesis 1-26 is that two letter word. Us. Let us. Now, I was certainly not an English major. You know that, you know that from how I talk. <laughs> I barely passed English. 
I speak redneck fluently. Other things I struggle with most of the time. But I do know this. When we're talking about us, we're talking about two or more. Let us make man. So what does God say? If God is one God, what does he mean when he says us? Well, I think he means this. I think he means that we have one God who has revealed himself to us in three persons. I think we have one God with three distinct personalities. We have one God who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we know according to Scripture that all of them were there at creation. We know God the Father was there. The Bible speaks of it in Genesis 1.1. Uh, in the beginning, God. That word there is Elohim, the creator God. Listen, God the Father in the beginning was there before everything else. How many of you know God stood on nothing and created everything? Now listen. But then Genesis 1.2 said, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. Do you remember that? Flip back just a little bit. Look back and read it with me. I want you to see it. And the earth was out form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So who else do we know is there? Is there? We have God the Father. We have God the Holy Spirit. Oh, but listen. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And there wasn't anything made that was made unless it was made by him. Now, the word that John is speaking of in John 1.1, we know to be who? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the claim that John is making? John is making the claim that Jesus is God. And he was in the beginning. And he was there at creation. See, Jesus didn't just become God when he was born in Bethlehem. He's always been God since the creation of the world. He's eternal. Praise the Lord. So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all there at creation. And God said, let us make man in our image. What is the image of God? What does he mean by that? Get this down, listen. God is triune in nature. Amen? Amen? Again, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And God creates with a triune nature. Think about it. If we're talking about mass that God has created, we're talking about length and breadth and height. If we're talking about time that God has created, what do we have? Past and present and future. And, and God said, I created man in the same way. How did he create man? Triune in nature. See, man is created with a physical body. And God tells us how he did that. Genesis chapter 2. The Bible says that he formed man of the dust of the ground. He created for man a physical body. And it's with that physical body that we interact with one another. I can interact with Brother Buster physically because I have a body and he has a body. Amen? But then the Bible says something else. Genesis 2 and 7. Look there with me. Watch. Watch how he puts this. 
Genesis 2 and 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became what? So we know God has a body that we interact physically with one another with, but we also know because of the breath of God, the breath of life, we now have a soul. And it's with our soul that we interact psychologically with one another. We get here. Amen? You ever had somebody do that to you? Get here with me. What are they saying? We need to connect psychologically. Right? So it's the body we interact physically. It's with the soul that we interact psychologically. But then the Bible also says that man has a spirit. And it's with the spirit that we interact with God because God is a what? Amen. Isn't that what Jesus said in John chapter 4? They who worship the Lord must worship him in spirit and in truth. Why? Because God is a spirit. Are you getting a hold of this? Now, Adam was created in the image of God with a physical body so he could interact physically with mankind, with a uh, soul so he could interact psychologically with other men as God would create. And now listen to me, folks. He also was created with the Spirit so that he could interact with God. And the Bible even teaches that God spent time with Adam daily in the garden interacting with him. Do you remember when Adam sinned? What does the Bible say? That God come walking in the cool of the day and yelled unto Adam in the garden, Adam, where art thou? And Adam was hidden. I don't think that was the first time God ever came walking. Do you? Of course not. God was interacting with Adam. Why? Because Adam had a spirit. But listen, when Adam sinned, the spirit died. Are you listening to me? So that now, whoever is born into sin, and all of us are, we are born spiritually dead. Brother, put for me Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 1 on the screen. See, when you were born into this world, you were born of the seed of Adam. And through the seed of Adam came the sinful nature. It's because of that sinful nature that we were born spiritually dead. But now listen, for those of us who's placed our faith in Jesus, I've got some great news for you. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 and 1, And you has he quickened. Somebody give me the definition for quickened. Amen. So let's read it like that. And you has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. What were we made alive to? We were made alive to the Spirit of God. Are you getting me? Now we can again interact with God himself. So that which was lost by sin in the garden with Adam was gained back with Christ through the cross for all those who believe. Are you getting me there? Now, I know I went a long way to say that, but I just had to say it. All right? And I said all that to say this. You've got a soul. And it's because of that soul that God put in us that we know there is an objective moral truth. Amen? We know there is a right and there is a wrong. Let 
Let me tell you how we know this. I want to use an illustration that C.S. Lewis wrote about in Mere Christianity. If you've not read that book, I would recommend it. Put that high on your list. If, you, if, you're look, if, you're, if you're not looking for something to read, buy that tonight and start reading it. It'll be a blessing to you. Mere Christianity changed my life. It really did. C.S. Lewis said this. He said this concerning this objective moral truth. He said, we may not even know that there is an objective moral truth, but we live by it continually. Everybody does. And he used the illustration of, of, of getting in a lunch line at school. And we may not think it's wrong to break in front of somebody else. I mean, we're just going to, it's not that big a deal. We're just getting a little bit ahead of them. It's not like they're not going to eat. They're going to eat too. We're just getting one step ahead of them. We may not think it's wrong to break in front of somebody, but guess what? We know it's wrong when somebody breaks in front of us. Right? We may not think it's that big a deal if we cut somebody off in traffic. But how do you feel when somebody cuts you off in traffic? Exactly. Why? Because we know there is an objective moral truth. There's a standard for what's right and what's wrong. How do we know that? Somebody answer that question. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because we got a soul. Right? And God has put that in us. Yes. Let me read to you a quote by C.S. Lewis on this very thing. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back in this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining that it's not fair. And That's right, isn't it? So there is an objective moral standard. That we all know to be true. Why? Because it's in us. God has revealed himself in us through our conscience, which came by way of the soul. Got me? Now listen to me. The problem today is that a lot of people don't believe in an absolute truth, an objective moral truth. The greatest problem in my opinion today is that most people believe in relative truth. I think that's the biggest problem in the world. What do I mean by relative truth? I mean that my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. That truth is like shifting sand. That my truth is based upon what I believe and your truth is based upon what you believe. What I believe to be right is based upon my experiences and what I believe to be wrong is based upon my experiences. I've got my right, you've got your right. I've got my wrong, you've got your wrong. Let me explain to you how dangerous that is. That's, that's extremely dangerous. And it's sending um, people to hell every day. And Satan knows this. That's why he keeps... Uh, doing everything he can to, 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 to get this stuff out there, this garbage out there. He's using a lot of people to do it. Listen to me very plainly. If there is no right and there is no wrong, there is no sin. If there is no sin, there is no need for a Savior. If there is no need for a Savior then what Jesus has done for all of us means nothing. 
If what Jesus has done for all of us means nothing, then all of us who don't trust in Jesus will die and go to hell. And Satan has then accomplished what he does, which is to steal, kill, and destroy. Are you getting the picture? Now, not only does that change eternity, it also changes everyday life. I actually had an argument. You, we, we can call it debate. I'm, it's just a dead gum argument. It got a little bit heated because it just got to me tremendously. I spoke to a, a, a young man about two years ago who argued with me that there is no sin and that the molestation of a child is not necessarily wrong depending on circumstances. You say, well, brother, that's few and far between. I beg to differ. In the world today, there are people who argue that pedophiles are just expressing themselves like everyone else. As a matter of fact, at a leading university in Great Britain in the last two months, there was a very popular professor who stood up and said as much. It's in the world you live in. This is the problem with relative truth. When you take that and run with it, it's a very slippery slope. Relative truth, I think, is behind the whole transgender movement. The transgender movement is an attack on God's absolute standard of truth. See, God said he created male and what? Do you know right now the state of New York, listen, they, they actually recognize 27 different genders? 27. That's relative truth when you take it to its final destination. So I can promise you it's important that we understand there is an objective moral truth. There's an absolute standard of truth. Now let, me, let me ask you something. Why don't people want to acknowledge that there is an objective moral truth or there is absolute truth when it comes to morality? Because I'll be honest with you. We recognize it in every other area of life. Let me tell you how I know this. Let's just say I go down to my bank tomorrow morning and I pull up to the window at my bank and I say, give me a million dollars. And that lady's going to look at me and laugh. And I say, well, you know what? Today I'm identifying as a millionaire. And I really feel like a millionaire. I really want to be a millionaire. So today, I'm going to need you to give me a million dollars. Do you think she's going to give it to me? Why? Because the, the absolute truth is, there ain't a million dollars in that account. I can feel like a typewriter, but I don't write many letters. And you can too. I'm just saying, there's an absolute standard in every other... When we go to the bank, we recognize an absolute standard of truth. When, when we uh, talk about mathematics, we recognize an absolute standard of truth. Two plus two is always going to equal four. You said, no, wait a minute, Brother Israel. I went to Hamilton. 
in Hamilton High School, I understand that 2 plus 2 always equals 5. And I really strongly believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Matter of fact, my mama, who's a very smart lady, told me 2 plus 2 equals 5. Teachers that I've respected all my life taught me 2 plus 2 equals 5. So I'm going to believe 2 plus 2 equals 5. Guess what? They, about to balance, they ain't going to be able to balance their checking book. Are they? Why? Because we must recognize in mathematics there's an absolute standard of truth. In measurement, 12 inches equals a foot. Well, brothers, I'll tell you what. I didn't what my daddy said. My daddy said 12 inches don't equal a foot. 12 inch, uh, 16 inches equals a foot. Guess what? When you go buy your lumber to build your house, you're going to find out everybody else except you recognizes 12 inches is a foot. Why? That's the absolute standard. And you're going to get a whole lot less lumber than you need or more lumber. How does that work? More lumber than you need when you buy your house. Are you see what I'm saying? So why don't we acknowledge an absolute standard when it comes to morality? Anybody? Why do we want to live the way we want to? Go ahead. Why do we want to live the way we want to? We said it at the beginning. What'd you say? Why do we want to be? Why, why do we have such self determination? What does that end? We want to be who? We want to be God. Are you see what I'm saying? See how this works? It all goes back to that question. Who's going to be God? Is God going to be God or are you going to be God? And the problem with a lot of people is they will not relinquish their will to God's will. And it's not because the evidence is not there and it's not because there's not a standard for truth because there is. It's because of sin. It's because of pride. Anybody got anything, comments, questions before we go any further? All right. What time we got? If God has manifested in us through conscience, God has shown it unto us through creation. And next week, I cannot wait to talk to you about creation. I'm jacked up already about next week. Cannot wait to share with you this truth. Let me tell you why. Satan's lied to you and to me in this world. And Satan has done everything he can to turn us against science when that shouldn't be the case. Because science and God are not enemies. They're old friends. And we're going to see that as we take the evidence and put it out there. The problem is Nobody wants to take all the evidence and put it on the table and look where it points. But if you'll do that, take my advice and try for yourself. If you'll do that, I promise you, 
It will not hinder your faith. It will strengthen your faith greatly. And we're going to do that next week. Anything else?